the average person is not going to become a fitness fanatic. This was a, a big realization I had as a trainer early on. When I first became a trainer, I thought I'd be able to turn everybody into this super passionate fitness fanatic. But the reality is most people just want to improve the quality of their lives. They want to use fitness and exercise as a tool to get to make them you know, better parents, to give them more energy, better partners, to improve their health. So most people, if we do a good job, we'll be able to get them to exercise about two or three days a week on a consistent basis if you're to average it out over the year. And that's, by the way, that's a massive accomplishment because the average person does zero, okay? Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HVMN Podcast. And I'm your host, Dr. Lat Mansour, a PhD in physiology, anatomy, and genetics, and the research lead of health, environment, and nutrition. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review. And if you have any question, leave us a comment. And as always, we appreciate it if you can share it with a friend. Now, without further ado, let's get into this episode of HVMM Podcast. In this episode, we have Sal DiStefano from Mind Pump Podcast. Sal is one of the most sought-after experts in the health and fitness industry because of his effective, grounded, and easy-to-understand style of communication. And it really shines through during this episode as well. He has been on hundreds of top podcast shows and frequently speaks at trainer and health practitioner events. In this episode, we covered the importance of resistance exercise in fixing the modern lifestyle problems. We also talked about the calorie in, calorie out concept, whether or not if it is that simple. Sal also shared a bunch of fitness tips for people who just want to get started or for experienced lifters alike in order to optimize your training programs or if you just want to break out of your plateaus. This is yet going to be another exciting episode, so stay tuned and enjoy. Hi, today we have Sal Stefano from Mind Pump. Thank you very much for coming on to Health via Modern Nutrition Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now, I'm really excited because, you know, your podcast, you know, Mind Pump has been really revolutionary in the sense that you guys don't only go out to explore, you know, the, the plethora of information around health and fitness, but you guys strive to shed light on the truth around the health and fitness industry, especially with such so much information nowadays that people have access to and so many different ways of training, so many different diets out there. And you guys give the nuanced sort of information to your listeners. So thank you for doing that. And, and I really um, love the work that you guys do. Yeah, so we started Mind Pump with the, the goal of, of really reaching the, the average person. There's a lot of information to sift through. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we could communicate things that were applicable, talk about behaviors rather than, you know, mechanistic asp- you know, actions. Like how can people modify their behaviors and, and change their behaviors in fundamental ways to help them improve their health um, and communicate it in effective ways, out communicate the bad stuff that's out there um, and, and basically outsell the bad information with our information. So what we're competing with is lose 30 pounds in 30 days. And here we are saying, you know, it'll take you a year to do so and you'll have to change your behaviors. So, you know, but it's working. I think it's working. You know, we were all trainers for, for over two decades. And we honed our ability to kind of talk and communicate this in an in, in effective way. So that's what you hear when you hear the show. There's a bit of entertainment in the show as well. We do that on purpose because we know we can attract more people and get more people to listen consistently. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, checking us out and listening to us. No, of course. And, and what I love most about your podcast, which is, I think, quite unique, is that you involve your listeners when your listeners call in and you guys have the live call and, and really answering 
everyday people's questions and, and everyone has it on their minds and all the struggles that people have on a daily basis and you guys give your professional you know, subject matter expert opinions on them and that's really great for a lot of our, the listeners who are just absorbing that information uh, into the, their own training programs. Right, yeah, no, um, I, I think part of the reason why we did that was we wanted, there's a lot of good general information we can give, but a lot of information or how you apply it can be quite individual. Um, when it comes to exercise, nutrition, you know, um, there's of course physiological effects, but then there are psychological and emotional mental connections to exercise and nutrition. So talking to people live on air allows us to show people, well, you know, this person asked the same question as the last person, but the answer is going to be a little bit different because this person is either, you know, has more stress in their life or maybe sleep is a bit of an issue for them or they don't like that form of exercise. And we want to show people it's a bit nuanced. It is a process. It is a journey. Uh, but if you follow it along and you stick to it and you get and you find a way to enjoy the journey, then you'll get there. Yeah, uh, I absolutely agree because I tell people all the time is that the more I know, and, and even though I have a PhD, the more I know, the, the less I feel that I know and, and the more unsure that I am of an answer because a lot of questions, I'll be like, well, it depends, yes. you know, because it's so nuanced, it's so personalized because of the knowledge that you're learning. It's so directed towards a certain target population that you can't just blanket statement everything and say that, you know, this is the magic pill that will cure everyone of, of diabetes, for example. Yeah, if it were that easy, um, then it would just be instructions. People would just have instructions. Oh, lose weight. Here's what I do. I'll follow it. Obviously, that doesn't work. Um, we're emotionally based creatures. Um, we have our own. I mean, physiologically speaking, we're very unique. We have our own microbiomes. We have our own genetics and uh, our immune systems are quite unique. But then the emotionally and, and mentally and, and psychologically, we're also very unique. I mean, you can have emotional connections to certain types of foods, you could, you could be motivated to eat things for different reasons, happiness, sadness, stress. Exercise can mean different things to you. If, if you start exercising from a negative standpoint, it could definitely feel pun like punishment, which can feel like, which can be cathartic at first, but then eventually you'll drop off. So the conversations are nuanced and it is a conversation. This is what we learned as trainers and coaches. It was never about giving someone an answer. It was about guiding people along the way. You know, you have to climb the mountain yourself you just need a guide to help you miss in, you know, the, the potholes and show you kind of the better ways to climb. But at the end of the day, you have to climb it yourself. Excellent. Okay. So you had mentioned uh, live callers. And I think that's an important thing that we do because it allows people to see the, the nuances and how you apply fitness and nutrition. You know, we're all very, very unique. And because this is a, a lifelong process, right? It's not like you can work out and change your diet and then go back to where you were before. You'll go back to where you were before. This is something you have to do for the rest of your life. And not only that, but you're not the same person, uh, you know, next month that you are now and 10 years from now. So it's a constant journey, constant process. There's a lot of nuance involved, not just with what works with your physical body, but what works with your emotional state and your mental state and how it makes you feel and how you approach things. And working with live callers gives us the opportunity to give more individualized advice. Because when we're talking the podcast, it's got to be a bit more general. But when we're talking to individuals, then we can get more specific. I can ask more questions and people can see like, okay, I can see how this journey, although all these paths lead up to the same point, there's quite a few different paths. So that's the idea. The idea is to kind of help guide people 
um, so that they can work with this um, themselves. Because ultimately, if you can do that, then you're going to be okay. Yeah, and and especially the inter individual uh, uh, inter individual variability between the live callers as well allow more people to relate specifically to that body type, for example, relate to that specific struggle, yeah. for example, and it's it's more useful than a general statement uh, per se. So I know you know you are you guys are a big proponent of resistance training, and uh, we have talked a lot on this show on resistance training as well. For example, uh, on episode 198 with Dr. Luisa Nicola, we we're talking about how resistance training actually increased the size of, size of hippocampus, which is the brain region that dictates learning and memory. In uh, episode 199, Drew Manning, he talked about his transformation, fit to fat to fit. Um, and also Michael Chernell, whom I know that you are you know, quite close to, yeah. um, he also talked about his routine and what he does in terms of resistance training versus endurance versus CrossFit, that sort of thing. Um, so tell us more about what your thoughts are on resistance training in general, how important they are, you know, um, what do you really preach for? Yeah, so, so first I want to start by saying that, you know, all forms of exercise, if applied appropriately, right, so the right intensity and technique and form for the individual, all forms of activity have benefit, okay, so I want to start out by saying that. But the reason why we preach strength training or, resist, or resistance training so much is because we understand the context of modern life and the challenges that modern life presents the average person. So let's paint that picture first, and then we'll talk a little bit about strength training. So modern life looks like this. Well, first off, the average person is not going to become a fitness fanatic. This was a, a big realization I had as a trainer early on. When I first became a trainer, I thought I'd be able to turn everybody into this super passionate fitness fanatic. But the reality is most people just want to improve the quality of their lives. They want to use fitness and exercise as a tool to get to make them, you know, better parents, to give them more energy, better partners, to improve their health. So most people, if we do a good job, we'll be able to get them to exercise about two or three days a week on a consistent basis if you were to average it out over the year. And that's, by the way, that's a massive accomplishment because the average person does zero, okay? So that's, that, there's that piece of context. Then there's this. Modern life is we are surrounded by hyper-palatable, plentiful, easily accessible food, okay? So food is everywhere. It's all around us. It's easy to get. In fact, you know, these days, I don't even have to get up out of my chair. I can order food. And I can order almost any flavor or texture or culture of food that I want um, within, like, like I said, within 30 minutes or so. So we have a lot of food. We're also extremely sedentary. So we do very, very little moving. Modern life does not involve hard labor like it used to. It actually involves very little walking. In fact, the average person takes less than 5,000 steps a day, which if you were to walk a mile, you would surpass that. Um, so it's very sedentary, but it's also simultaneously very busy. Everything is scheduled these days. We have our emails and texts on our phone. If you're a parent these days, if you want your kids to hang out with other kids, you have to schedule um, play dates. You know, when I was a kid, we just played with kids. Um, so we're, we're busy, sedentary, lots of food around us. And uh, the result of this is just obesity, stress, hormone imbalances. And, and we can see this, right? The, the chronic uh, illnesses of modern life are obesity, obesity-related diseases, insulin insensitivity, um, Alzheimer's, dementia, like things that really plague modern societies. So when you look at that, what you want to do is you want to pick the form of exercise that's going to give you the most bang for your buck in that context. Okay, so let's back up for a second. Let's talk about obesity because obesity is uh, like this kind of uh, 
Obesity is this umbrella that covers this wide range of, of health issues. If you're obese, your risk of heart disease, cancer, depression, anxiety, pretty much any health issue increases if you are obese. And almost every health issue decreases if you're at a, a, an appropriate body fat percentage, okay? So with uh, obesity, to solve obesity, and this is very true, to lose weight, we have to create what's called an energy imbalance. I know you're familiar with this, but for the average person, you have to be able to take in less calories than you burn or burn more calories than you take in. What your body does then is it searches for that, that deficit of calories. So if I burn 2,000 calories, but I eat you know 1,000 calories, my body needs to find that extra 1,000 calories, and ideally it takes it from body fat, okay? And now the reverse is also true. If I burn less than I eat, my, those calories, that, that energy has to be stored, and it tends to be stored as body fat. Now, that's very true. The problem is what we've done is we've taken exercise, and we valued exercise based on its calorie burn. Because what we did is we said, okay, if we need to burn more calories than we take in, it makes sense to value the form of exercise or the forms of exercise that burns the most calories, okay? And I understand the logic behind that. Behind that. The problem with that, though, however, is it ignores the most important factor with exercise, which is how does this form of exercise get my body to adapt? And then what do those adaptations mean? Because the adaptations are with me all the time, whether I'm working out or not. The adaptations that are induced through exercise um, can mean quite a bit. Um, now, what are adaptations? Well, uh, you know, let's say you go out and you run for the first time. It's going to be really hard to run down the street without breathing hard. But eventually you get better, and then you can run a block, and then two blocks, and then a mile, two miles, and so on. Your body's adapting by getting better at uh, meeting the stress demands that you're placing upon it. Your body's trying to prevent that same insult from causing the same amount of stress. Now, of course, what you do is you increase the stress uh, as you get more fit to improve your fitness. So running one mile a day will only get you so fit. Eventually, you have to run two miles a day and so on. So let's look at adaptations, okay? In the context of modern life, the adaptation that would be most beneficial would be one that protects us from modern life. Um, and one of the most protective things in modern life that we could do is teach our bodies to burn more calories on their own. Okay, in essence, speed up our metabolism, right? So a faster metabolism today is an asset. Now, that might have been a liability 20,000 years ago, right? 20,000 years ago, if you're the guy that's got a metabolism that's roaring, you might be in trouble because food is very hard to come by. But today, um, you, it, it'll protect you. You know, if I have a fast metabolism, well, then eating all this food around me isn't going to be quite as damaging. In fact, uh, studies will show that even unhealthy foods or unhealthy ingredients, you can mitigate a significant portion of the damage by simply eating less calories. I mean, there's been studies where people eat high sugar diet, for example, but because the calories are low, you still see improvements in blood markers. Now, I'm not advocating for that kind of a diet because it's much more complex than that. It also affects how you feel and other types of behaviors and, and, and so on, and there's healthier ways to do it. But my point is, if I can get my metabolism to burn more calories, then I'm protecting myself quite a bit. And there's only one form of exercise that will do that on a consistent basis, and that's strength training. And the reason why strength training does this is because it's a pro-muscle tissue form of exercise. Other forms of exercise are not like this. Uh, you may gain a little bit of strength with other forms of exercise, but some of them, in fact, actually teach your body to lose muscle. 
Strength training tells your body to build muscle. And the process of building muscle and the fact that you have more muscle gives you basically more calorie-burning machinery. Now, I want to back up here for a second because I uh, will often hear um, scientists say things like, well, a pound of muscle only burns X amount more calories uh, than a pound of, let's say, adipose tissue, which, which is really an oversimplification because your, meta your metabolic rate has a range with your current lean body mass, okay? So without losing or gaining muscle, your body can burn more or less calories by becoming more or less efficient. What tells it to become more or less efficient? Your behaviors, okay? And simply telling your body through exercise that it needs muscle and needs strength tips the scale towards less efficient. And then if you build muscle, that's even better. Now you burn more calories. But there's even more, right? There's even more that goes into this. Hormones play a big role in that calories out um, part of the equation. For example, if you took a man and raised his testosterone, he would gain a little bit of lean body mass and probably get a little leaner. If you gave men and women more optimal levels of growth hormone, you would probably see them get a little leaner and gain a little bit of lean body mass, right? If we raised people's cortisols, cortisol levels and brought down, let's say, testosterone growth hormone, we'd probably see a trend towards more fat storage and muscle loss, right? Imbalances in hormones tends to cause that. Well, why am I bringing this up? Because strength training's primary adaptation signal is to build muscle, the process of building muscle involves your body organizing its hormones in a way to do so. So if you look at a hormone profile uh, of a man or a woman, the best hormone profile that builds muscle also is the hormone profile that we tend to want. It's the one that we tend to have when we're young. So if you look at like an 18 or 19-year-old's hormone profile, that tends to be a healthy 18, 19-year-old. That tends to be a great muscle-building hormone profile. So strength training also tells our hormones to organize themselves in a way that is conducive to fat loss, that is conducive to muscle building. And through that process, indirectly, is conducive to better health, okay? So it's a very protective form of exercise. It's also not required because the primary um, uh, benefit of strength training is the adaptation and not the calorie burn. Because it is true that, you know, running for an hour will burn more calories than, than lifting weights for an hour. But that's not the main benefit of strength training. We just talked about it. It's adaptation. I don't need to do it all the time. Now, if the primary form, uh, if the primary benefit of the form of exercise that I'm doing is the calorie burn, well, then when I stop doing it, I lose the benefit. So I got to do a lot of it. I got to do it all the time. So with strength training, you know, two days a week, three days a week, I send the signal to my body to build muscle. I feed my body appropriately because I got to give it the building blocks to do so. And then the, 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 the muscle building process, all the stuff that I just talked about, happens on the days off. It happens on all the days off when I'm not in the gym working out. Um, muscle is also um, very insulin sensitive, okay? So, and I know this is probably something you cover quite a bit, right? Um, the simple act of building muscle will improve insulin sensitivity. Muscle is one of the parts of the body, you know, the liver being the main, but muscle itself also stores glycogen, glycogen coming from carbohydrates. So if I increase the, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, tank that I can store glycogen in, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be better suited to eat more carbohydrates and sugars. Um, and and insulin is also an anabolic hormone in the right context, meaning 
when I have more muscle and I have, you know, better hormone levels, insulin tends to be utilized more effectively and efficiently, which means I need less of it. I actually need yeah. less. There's actually studies done on obese individuals where they get them to lose no weight and all they do is have them build muscle. And we see improvements in their blood sugar uh, and insulin levels. So it's this wonder. Now, now, why is that important? Well, we know that insulin insensitivity can cause lots and lots of different problems, including, um, you know, uh, degenerative disorders of the brain, like Alzheimer's, dementia. You know, some researchers even call those type 3 diabetes. Well, there was some research done out of uh, Sydney, Australia, that showed that strength training was one of the most effective forms of exercise for, uh, for halting the progression of beta amyloid plaques, which we know there's somewhat of a connection between those and, uh, you know, um, Alzheimer's and dementia, right? In fact, they said this is, we've never seen a non-medical intervention do something like this, right? So um, it's just this very effective, you know, bang for your buck form of exercise that lends itself very well to the average person, the average person's challenges. So it's like, okay, let's try building some muscle. Let's, let's get my body to learn how to burn more calories. Now, I, I do want to say this too, when people, and, and this might resonate with some people, when you use other forms of exercise to try to lose weight, where the primary uh, benefit is the calorie burn while I do it, the weight loss does tend to happen a little faster. But I do want to be very clear, you tend to see muscle loss along with that, with that weight loss. In fact, studies done on cardio plus diet, you're looking at almost half of the weight you lose uh, coming from muscle. And you might wonder, wonder why. Well, because your body's trying to match its calorie demands with its calorie intake. And if it doesn't think it needs strength, one of the best ways it does this is pair muscle down. It'll get rid of muscle to slow your metabolism down, to make you more efficient. This is a, an evolutionary adaptation response. So what ends up happening is you lose some weight initially, then you plateau real hard, and then you're stuck with, okay, I guess I got to work out more, and I got to eat less, and then you lose another five pounds and you plateau again. And then eventually you're in this kind of unsustainable place where you're working out like crazy, you're eating very, very little, and a lot of people, no, most people don't want to or can't stick to, to that type of a protocol. Now with strength training, the weight loss does start off slower, partially because uh, what you lose is body fat. And in the beginning, you tend to gain muscle at the same time. So there's a bit of a, of a weight transfer. So although the scale may only show a two pound weight loss, you probably gained you know, four pounds of muscle and lost six pounds of body fat. So on the scale, it only shows up as two pounds. By the way, muscle is very dense. So um, if anybody watching this were to lose 10 pounds of body fat and gain 10 pounds of muscle, they'd be smaller. Okay, so muscle doesn't look the same. It's a, it's a, it, it takes up uh, something like uh, maybe uh, a little more than two-thirds of the space of body fat. So it's, And also it gives you shape and sculpt and all that stuff. So what happens with strength training is that that process starts off kind of slow, but then you get this snowball effect as your metabolism starts to kick, kick in, as you start to teach your body to burn more calories. So it was commonplace for me with clients over the course of six months or a year while training someone through strength training to get their metabolic rates to increase by 500 calories, 800 calories. There were cases where I'd get people's metabolic rates to increase by over 1,000. Now, think about that for a second. Just imagine burning 500 more calories a day and you're not doing anything extra. You're just sitting there, right? That would take you an hour and a half of cardio to do. And yet here you are doing nothing and burning, you know, extra calories. And, and think about it this way. You lost 30 pounds, but you're eating more than you did when you first started. 
Now, that sounds to me like a sustainable, a much more, I should say, sustainable approach. And the reason why consistency and sustainability is so important to me is because if you look at the statistics on, on weight loss, it's very clear. We don't have a weight loss problem. Millions of Americans lose weight every year. What we have is a keep weight off problem. Everybody, almost everybody gains it back. I mean, the, the last time I looked it up, it was like 85% fail, fail rate within the first year. And I, I would challenge even if we go uh, as far as five years, it's probably north of 95%. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not about losing the weight. It's let's figure out a way so that I can sustain this and keep this going. And what does that look like? Can I do this working out less? Can I do this while I'm eating more? Can I do this in a way to where my hormones are working for me? And strength training does that. So if you're only going to work out a couple days a week and you're not going to do tons of workouts all the time, like pick strength training because it just it, 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 it gives you the most dividends by far. Yeah, exactly. And even the most extreme way of weight loss i.e. bariatric surgery, 50 to 60% of them actually gain back the weight within five years. So like even like you physically, surgically remove part of your stomach, you will still gain back that weight because of a lot of different aspects that affect weight gain and weight loss in terms of the insulin sensitivity, in terms of basal metabolic rate. And that's a very important point as well that you pointed out is that people often forget because they're so focused on activity based yeah. thermogenesis which is the energy expenditure based on how much activity you do i.e you go you know exercise and all of that they forget there is also the majority part of energy expenditure of your daily expenditure that comes from i uh comes from basal metabolic rate as well as need the non-exercise activity um thermogenesis so those are very important to build up and it takes time to build up as well because as you said you know as your body adapts to a lower weight as your body adapts to different sort of calorie intake um you will have to switch things around and really tailor your training and diet based on your body and your physique and your improvement and your progress as yeah. well and let yeah. me add one thing to that because yeah. there's there's this fascinating study that was done. Um, I, I bring this one up on my podcast quite a bit because it's so illuminating. So scientists went down to northern Tanzania and they studied the the Hadza tribe, and these are modern hunter gatherers. So for all intents and purposes, they live the way that humans lived, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, before the agricultural revolution. So they hunt and they gather. Um, they are, they don't have electronics. They don't sit on couches. In fact, when they sit, they sit in a squat. They're far more active than the average Western couch potato. And the way that they hunt is the way that we hunted a hundred thousand years ago. You, you, you stalk an animal, you throw something at it, you chase it until it gets exhausted. This is how humans hunted. Um, and then you drag it back. So scientists went down and studied their, and, and through some pretty sophisticated testing, studied their basal metabolic rates. Okay. How many calories, not just basal, but how many calories they burn total throughout the day? So this includes the thermogenesis from activity. How many calories are they burning on a, on a daily basis? And here's what they found. It was very similar to the average Western couch potato. Now, you may be wondering, how's that possible? They're so active. They're hunter-gatherers. It's because if you think of evolution, it makes perfect sense. It would not make sense for the human body to allow us to burn 6,000 calories a day through activity when we're hunter-gatherers. It's almost impossible to find 6,000 calories a day worth of energy. What type of activity do the Hadza tribes people, uh, it, what do they do mostly? 
lots of cardio, lots of walking, lots of running, stalking their prey, right? That form of exercise, because you don't require lots of strength, it tells the body to become an efficient endurance machine, okay? Strength training doesn't do that. Strength training tells your body to be strong. And the side effect of being strong is a metabolism that burns more calories. So now if we were hunter-gatherers, this would be a very different conversation. I'd be saying, look, you don't want to like sit there and try and get stronger because you're not going to be able to meet your caloric demands through the food that we can find here in nature. But we live in modern societies where food is everywhere. And again, a fast metabolism is an asset. It's an absolute asset. So that's why we call strength training the best form of exercise for modern life. Now, ideally, in a perfect world, people would do lots of different forms of exercise. Strength training would probably be the foundation. We'd involve cardiovascular activity. There'd be some mobility, some mobility, some flexibility. There'd be some sort of a mindfulness or spiritual practice. These are all data-driven uh, you know, uh, forms of activity that have been shown to have um, great impacts on us. But like I said earlier, the average person's going to do one. And they'll do one two or three days a week. So if you understand that, like, let me pick the one that is going to be the most effective, that's going to be the most protective and allow me to live a quote-unquote, you know, relatively normal life in uh, the modern world. Now, I do also want to touch upon the behaviors that tend to make people fall off the wagon or tend to make people, you know, uh, gain the weight back or stop doing what may have been successful for them. Because part of what I'm talking about is like, let's be effective, okay? But that's not the full picture. There's also motivations and relationships that we develop with exercise and nutrition. This is the other half of the coin, and this is equally as important. So how you do it is very important. Why you do it is equally important. And a big problem, and this is most people, a big problem with the initial motivations with most people is they're derived from a a negative uh, standpoint. It's a very negative viewpoint of themselves. It's this kind of self-hate model. I'm fat, I'm not attractive. I'm inadequate, and and although a very powerful short-term motivator, it's a terrible long-term motivator. Terrible. Why? Well, because if you're going to the gym because you hate yourself, you hate the fact that you're fat, or you hate the fact that you're, you know, inadequate or not attractive. Well, exercise is a punishment. I'm going to the gym to beat myself up, and in fact, initially it feels quite cathartic. You'll see people do this as beginners, where they show up and they want to lose 40 pounds. And they'll judge a workout by how hard it was. Oh, my God, what a great workout. I almost threw up. And you know right away, like, okay, you're, you're, you're hating yourself and it feels good to, to kind of, you know, it's like that self-flagellation, right? But in the long term, it's terrible because nobody wants to hate themselves forever. This is why people, there's, this is so common, right? You, you, see, you, know, you have a friend. They start eating right. They start exercising. You see them six months later. They stopped. You ask them, what happened? Why did you stop? Oh, I just want to enjoy my life. You know, what a strange, for those of us in the space who understand the benefits of, of, of exercise and diet, it's a very strange thing to hear. It's such a disconnect. It's such a disconnect between self, like ha- having fun in life, enjoying life with being healthy, which it shouldn't be. Yes, absolutely. Because I can't think of anything. There's no single thing that will improve the entire the entirety of the quality of your life, like being healthier, okay? Take anything, being a parent, uh, you know, being a, uh, an employee or a business owner or a partner, your sleep, 
like your creativity, whatever. All of it will improve if you improve your health. And yet people are stopping because they just want to enjoy their life. Well, why was that? Because they hated themselves through the process. It was through this negative, you know, this negative viewpoint. It's the same thing with diet. Diet becomes restrictive when I'm hating myself. Okay. Now let's look at the other side of this. Let's flip this. Okay. Let's think about the positive here for a second. If I'm going to the gym and rather than saying it's because I'm fat and I don't like myself, I'm saying, you know what? I haven't been taking care of myself. I deserve to be healthy. I'm going to go take care of myself. Well, now exercise becomes self-care, right? My diet becomes self-care. You know what? I deserve to be healthy. I need to feed myself like I'm feeding someone I care about. Well, now it's no longer restrictive. It's something that I want to do. By the way, balance is baked into this naturally, okay? If I go to the gym because I hate myself, there's no balance. It's all or nothing. I beat the crap out of myself or I can't stand hating myself and I don't want to go, right? Diet, there's no balance either. It's either I'm tyrannizing myself, you undisciplined, you know, overweight child, you can't have that cookie. That's why you offer a cookie to someone on a diet. What do they say? I can't have that, right? Um, that's, that's a terrible long-term approach. Now, on the other end, if you're doing this positive, well, when I go to the gym, if I'm caring for myself, if I'm like, hey, I deserve to be cared for, I deserve to be healthy. Well, now when I'm a little tired, I'm going to work out a little easier. When I have more energy, I'm going to work out a little harder. If I'm feeling under the weather, I'll probably skip the gym. With diet, again, balance becomes a, kind of a natural part of it. If you're offering me a cookie, I'm not going to say I can't. I'll probably say, no, thanks. I don't want that. Or, or, and here's the beauty of this, sometimes a cookie is healthy. Maybe not physiologically, but maybe I haven't seen, maybe you and I are friends. I haven't seen you for, you know, a year. I come over, you make some home-baked cookies. And at that moment, what I'm nourishing, what I'm caring for myself is this bonding between us. So I'm going to say, yeah, I'll have a cookie. I'll try one of these cookies that you made. You know, here's another telling part of, of that initial motivation, how people enter into it, okay? When people go, you know, quote unquote, off a diet, they, that initial going off the diet is not going back to how they ate before. It's going back to eating worse than they did before. You ever see somebody, you know, go off the diet by, okay, I'm going to have some pizza. They don't eat like two slices. They eat the whole pizza, right? Yeah. They don't need they, they feel like they have failed themselves. And then they're like, well, I'm going to fail anyway. Might as well fail harder. It's a rebellion. Yes. They're rebelling against themselves. It's unlike, it's, it's, it's really not, uh, it's like a child who's been tyrannized by their parent. They're going to go, they're not just going to like go against, they're going to go against in a big way. This is when you, like I said, you eat that whole box of cookies and your stomach hurts and you're like, oh my God, why did I do that? Well, I did that because I finally rebelled against hating myself. I finally went, I broke that barrier and I'm done and I'm going to just, you know, whatever, indulge or, or distract, right? So, so these, are the, these are the most important things to consider when you're trying to approach this and you're trying to say to yourself, I want to improve my health and I want to do it in a way where it's a relationship that I can maintain for the rest of my life. I want to be able to do this for the rest of my life. You have to go into it with that with, with that, from a positive standpoint, from a self-care standpoint. And then you also want to make sure you do it in the most effective way possible because it could be very, very disheartening when you do the other way where I hit plateaus and I got to work out more and eat less. And then I hit another plateau and I got to work out more and eat less. And then you're stuck and you're like, I'm you know, doing five days a week in the gym. I'm eating 1,200 calories a day. I still have 10 pounds to lose. This is not for me. I give up. Yeah, you don't want to be in that position. 
I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge our sponsors of this show, Ketone IQ, the best exogenous ketone you can take to elevate your blood ketone levels. I personally take it every day before a podcast to wire my brain up, before and after my workout to really feel my body. So give yourself a chance, take a shot, and you will feel the difference within minutes. So head over to hvmn.com and use the code HVMNPOD20, that is HVMNPOD20, for 20% off your purchase and enjoy your ketone IQ and give your brain the perfect fuel. And, and trust me, I, I am like sort of skating through that phase right now, actually, mm. myself personally. Um, and, and that's why I find it so interesting when I look at Mind Pump, when I look at maps, your training program and all that, and, and I've got so, many, so much to break your brain on. And with regards to what you just said, you know, how people rebel and they go really hard on the opposite side, we often see this in human nature. Yeah. When you oppress something a lot and you really push something down, when they finally open that dam and open that gate, that floodgate, it just comes pouring out. And that's not a healthy way to live life. And I have been that. You know, I've, I've grown up um, pretty much overweight all my life until I was 22. I was a smoker for seven years. I have lived the most unhealthy lifestyle. And then the more I learn about physiology and, and health, the more I feel like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm a hypocrite if I keep doing this because I'm bringing harm to my body. And then I started off by saying that, oh, you know, you are overweight because you did all this. You know, you should get out of your, of your couch, get out of your room and go do some exercise for, for, for your good sake, you know, like yeah. do something. And then over time, it didn't. It took me a long time before I turn it around. It's a matter of perspective, right? As you said, yeah. it has to come from a place of self-care, self-reinforcement. I am doing it because I love myself. I love myself enough to want to live a healthy life, a high quality life, so that I can spend more quality time with the people I love, with people around me. Yes, you, and now you hit the nail on the head, and I, I do want to clarify, because sometimes people hear self-love, and they're like, but I don't feel that way about myself, right? Because uh, maybe I'm living in a way that I just, you know, now I'm becoming aware of or allowing myself to be aware of where I've been harming myself. I've, I haven't been taking care of myself. When, when, when people say self-love, we're not necessarily talking about the feeling, okay? Because self-love often comes with this feeling, this warm, fuzzy feeling. But really what love is is an action, okay? Think about married couples who've been married for 50 years, right? They've definitely gone through periods of their marriage where they didn't even like each other, but they chose to love each other through action because they valued their partnership. So when, it, when we say self-love or when I say self-care, oftentimes you're not going to have that feeling. In fact, you, you probably won't a lot in the beginning because it's something you have to kind of learn to develop. But what you're going to do is you got to do the actions. How would I treat somebody I actually care about? How would I treat myself in a way that is where it's self-care? That's, that's the point that you want to get to. And then the feelings tend to follow and come along with it. By the way, you know, what you're talking about is the journey of fitness. It really is. This is it's, it's, uh, one of my favorite things about fitness and health is it's one of the most powerful vehicles for personal growth. Now, you, you might not have known that when you first started it. You might have thought, I just want to lose weight. Or in my case, I was a very skinny kid growing up, so I was very insecure about that. So I wanted to, you know, feel more adequate, right? More masculine, more adequate or whatever. But if you stick to it long enough, you end up learning self-acceptance, right? At some point, you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to look like that fitness model. Or in my case, I'm not going to look like Arnold, but I'm going to continue doing it every, anyway, right? You learn how to, uh, you learn 
uh, failure because when you first start exercising and you do new exercises, you suck. You're going to suck. You're not going to be good at it. But what you do is you keep practicing them until you get better. You develop a, a relationship with pain. By the way, this is very important. In modern societies, because we've made life so physically easy for ourselves, we have a very distorted relationship with pain, okay? Pain can be good. It can be bad. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this. I remember as an early trainer, I had this woman that I was training. This was probably within the first couple months. And I put her on the tricep press-down machine, right? So she's doing a cable, doing a tricep press-down. Very lightweight. She was deconditioned, never worked out before. And after a few reps, she let go of the bar. Like the weight stack slammed and she let go. And I said, what's the matter? She said, oh, my God, I, I think I hurt myself. So I'm checking her out or whatever. Well, it turns out she was just feeling her triceps burn a little bit. Mm. But she didn't have a relationship with pain to where she could understand that. So what does that mean? Well, when you look at somebody who's been working out or training for a long time, they feel as much or more pain during the workout than you do as a beginner, than somebody would as a beginner. The difference is they, they've de developed a different relationship with it. In fact, if you talk to pain doctors, uh, one of the hardest things to treat in medicine is pain. It's very, very difficult to treat. Why? Because there's this physiological, there's, there's what's happening to us physiologically with pain, but then there's our connection and our relationship to that pain. In fact, you'll find, and there's lots of studies that show this, that people will often have chronic like back pain that'll get alleviated because they go and seek therapy for depression. Okay? So wow. this is a very, the, the relationship you can develop with pain through exercise, through challenging yourself, has profound effects on the rest of your life. It allows you to deal with different kinds of pain, different kinds of pain you may feel. Um, it makes you stronger and more durable. Um, it's, it's just this wonderful growth uh, uh, vehicle. And you know the acceptance part, I love that because you know, if, you are, if you work out long enough, you eventually will get older. You gotta accept that too. <laughs> you have to accept so much when you follow along this. But the key really is, is learning how to enjoy this journey. How can I enjoy the journey? Because if I enjoy walking, I'm gonna walk further than somebody who just enjoys hitting a goal or getting to a destination. There are no destinations when I enjoy the journey. In fact, I hit the destinations as a side effect. So if you're looking for lifelong success with this, boy, that's key. And I promise you will not enjoy the journey if it starts out with and it continues on this path of self-hate. You just, no, one, no one's gonna love that, nobody likes that. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense why most doctors, when they ask you about pain, they don't really measure it by measuring your biological receptors and, and, yeah. and neurotransmitters. They ask you to fill up a form from one to 10. It's subjective. What's, it's very subjective, it's very relative to the, you know, indiv from individual to individual. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, we've covered a lot already, um, and, and thank you so much for the, such a brilliant elaboration on why we should be focusing on resistance training, because it all boils down to the excessive food, excessive amount of, you know, uh, obscene amount of food that we have access to, and, and sedentary lifestyle, and, you know, the increased risk of metabolic health, which we talk a lot on the show, and then, you know, tying it back down to mental strength and resilience, as well as just physically want to be active and then, you know, basal metabolic rate. So I know you guys have this um, fitness program called MAPS. 
Yeah. Um, I would like to explore a little bit and, and also tell our listeners, what is it all about? Because I've seen like, there's so many different types of maps training that you know, you've got maps aesthetics, you've got maps uh, 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 powerlifting and all of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So one of the great things about strength training is its versatility. Um, there's so many different, in fact, strength training is um, a superior form of exercise um, when it comes to uh, individualizing. So I can train somebody who's in a wheelchair with strength training. I could train a, an athlete. I could train a, an older woman, a younger woman, someone who's tall, someone who's short, because strength training is very individualized. There's, there's, a, there's a, I don't know, a million different exercises, a million different ways to perform them. And strength training really is just working against resistance in a way to build muscle and build strength. By the way, this can involve weights, machines, um, resistance bands, or just your own uh, body weight. So MAPS are MAPS stands for Muscular Adaptation Programming System. Um, and really what it is, is these are workout programs designed to build strength, build muscle, work on mobility or athleticism, or even get more specific. You mentioned MAPS Powerlift, if you wanted to be a powerlifter, or if you like to train for obstacle course racing, we have obstacle course racing, or if you like stamina and endurance, we have a, a program for stamina and endurance. So what we did is we designed different programs that allow people to work out in different ways. Most of them are strength training based. Um, and, and, and why did we do this? Because the body responds very well to novelty, but it's also important for consistency. It keeps things fun and exciting. And so what we did is we designed these workouts. We made them very appropriate, very effective based on our experience training, you know, thousands of everyday people. So you have something laid out for you. So the, the strength of strength training is also somewhat of its weakness. It's versatile, it's very individualizable, but that can also make it very confusing and complex, right? It's not as easy as just running or riding a bike. It's like, okay, I wanna do strength training. Like what exercises, what are reps? How many sets? What about rest periods? Like how do I train throughout the day and when do I train again? And then is it the same workout or is it a different workout? And so what we did is we just put together workout programs that people could follow. And most of them are about three months long. So you have your 90 days worth of, of training. Each one is a little different. You'll notice different reactions and responses within the body. And we recommend people go through different MAPS programs throughout the year to avoid things like imbalances, overuse injuries, and also just to get people, because we know that, again, through training people, when you try different modalities, when you try different exercises, that process also teaches you a lot about yourself. And you notice like, wow, I respond really well to low rep ranges or higher rep ranges, or wow, I really enjoy unconventional strength training, or I really enjoy bodybuilding style strength training. And I can see how that affects my body, or I could see the, the weaknesses in this kind of training. I like power lift, but if I keep power lifting for too long, my joints start to bother me. So then I'll go into, you know, MAPS performance, which might be more mobility focused, right? So we wanted to give people the tools because once we communicated what we communicate, it's like, okay, all right, well now, how do I work out? Like, how do I do this? And so that's what all those programs are. And are these being done in person or remote or a hybrid? No, so these are, uh, they're online. So you buy a MAPS program and what you get is your workout laid out for you, exercises, sets, reps, and video demos. So you could watch somebody perform the exercise with cues so you can have proper form and, te and technique. And it's just all laid out for you. So, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or however the program's laid out, like this is, this is what I'm following, this is what I'm doing. And it's all, like I, it's all, like I said, it's all specified. So 
you know, in this phase, you're focusing on this rep range. This phase, it's a different rep range. These are the exercises for this program. These are the exercises for that program. So it's just laid out for you, but it's all online. So you can access it by your phone or computer. Does it also include sort of nutrition plan on top of that? So here's why we don't touch nutrition too much. Because nutrition is r remarkably complex from uh, an individual standpoint, that when I, we give general nutrition guidelines and we teach people how to work with their behaviors, but giving people specifics with nutrition is, it's gonna work for some and it's not gonna work for others. And we also know the, as complicated as the exercise portion can be, you can multiply that times 100 and that's what the diet portion is when you're trying to improve your health because our relationship to, to nutrition, to diet, is extremely complex. I mean, um, if you think about all the reasons why most people eat, hunger is, is like at the bottom. I'm talking about modern societies, right? Most of us ever, never really actually feel hungry, by the way. Unless you fasted for two or three days, what you tend to feel are cravings uh, or impulses. We eat for lots of different reasons. We eat for celebration, if we're happy, if we're stressed, if we're sad. Um, we, foods can affect us differently. We have different immune reactions to different foods. So one person may eat a particular type of diet and feel phenomenal. Another person might feel kind of groggy and lethargic. Um, different diets have different, or different diet styles have different potential benefits and potential negatives. So it is quite complex. So what we try to do is we try to focus on behaviors. I'll give you an example. Okay. Um, if you're trying to lose weight, you're going to want to burn more calories than you take in or take in less calories than you, than you, than you burn, right? So part of a weight loss process is going to involve cutting your calories somewhat, okay, with your diet. So let's say I want you to cut 500 calories, which is, I would say, a standard. Again, uh, for people watching, this is general, so this could be different from person to person. But generally speaking, let's say you're going to cut 500 calories from your diet. Well, there's two ways I could approach this. One way would be to tell somebody, count your calories every day and eat 500 calories less, okay? The other way would be to tell somebody, eat as much as you want, just make sure you stick to whole natural foods and avoid heavily processed foods. Okay, now those sound very different, right? Well, guess what? Both of them result in a drop in about 500 calories a day. Studies are very clear on this. If you eat a diet that, uh, that is comprised of a lot of heavily processed foods, foods that are in packages and wrappers, you're going to eat about five to 600 more calories a day. So if I just tell you, eat as much as you want, but stick to whole natural foods, foods that have like one ingredient, meat, eggs, milk, vegetables, fruit, right? That type of stuff. And you eat until you feel satisfied. You're going to naturally eat less because heavily processed foods are engineered. Lots of money and science and engineering goes into making these foods make you want to overeat. They actually overcome your natural systems of satiety. I'll give you an example. Uh, we had Chris Kresser on the show years ago, and he gave this example, and I love it, and I use it all the time, right? If I took five plain boiled potatoes, no salt, no butter, just plain, and I put them in front of you, and I said, eat all of these in 45 minutes, that would be very difficult. Like after the second potato, you'd start to gag, right? You'd be like, oh, this is... This is gross. I mean, I mean, you get what's called palate fatigue, okay? If I gave you a family-sized bag of Lay's potato chips and I said, eat this in 45 minutes, you probably could. Well, guess what? That family-sized bag of potato chips contains about four or five potatoes. What's the difference? One of them is hyper-palatable. 
whole natural foods allow our bodies, because our bodies evolved to have these kind of regulators. There's this myth out there that humans are eating machines. And if we just have food in front of us, we'll eat until we make ourselves sick. That's not true. Overeating, you know, 10,000 years ago in a single meal would have been bad as well. You could have gastro distress. You could make yourself very sick that without doctors and, you know, geez, diarrhea killed uh, millions of people before modern medicine. So our bodies have these natural systems of satiety. Well, when you're eating whole natural foods, they work. They work. When you're eating heavily processed foods, they don't work so well. So when I tell people, eat as much as you want, just avoid heavily processed foods, they naturally cut their calories. Why is that more effective than telling someone to cut calories? Psychologically speaking, behaviorally speaking, it's a very different approach. I don't feel restricted. I don't feel controlled. I feel very satisfied. This, in fact, I would do this with clients. This was one of my favorite things to do. I would, I would have clients do that. I'd say, eat as much as you want, avoid heavily processed foods. And they'd look at me like I was crazy, like, eat as much as I want. I'd say, yeah, eat as much steak, fruit, you know, whatever. Eat as much whole natural foods as you want, and then we'll see what happens. And then they'd start to lose weight. And they'd be like, oh, my God, I didn't know that, you know, that, that heavily processed foods just made you gain body fat. So, well, not necessarily. I said, I don't know. You don't realize this, but you're actually eating less. Well, it can't be. I feel, I feel so satisfied. And then we would, you know, talk about kind of what was going on. Yeah, another, one, uh, another behavioral piece of advice is to, um, not, is to eat while you're not distracted. So don't eat in front of your phone, computer, TV, sit down and eat your meal. That will, on average, result in about a 10 to 15% less uh, consumption, about 10, 10, 10 to 15% less calories, just by eating while not distracted. Just much more effective, right? It's, it's, a, it's a behavior-based approach, not a count your calories, you know, approach, which it just fails, fails every single time. So many golden nugget tips. Thank you so much. Like these are little tips that everyone can follow on a daily basis to really improve their lifestyle. And I love the fact that you brought our conversation here because obviously me bringing up, do you have nutrition plans on your MAPS program? It's because I want to go into this area of nutrition. And I was going to ask you about, you know, we talked a bit about calorie in, calorie out. Of course, if we are just a machine that churns food in and then, you know, take food in and then churn it out, then calorie in, calorie out makes sense because you yeah. need to use your calories you know, more, than, more than what you take in and automatically you will lose weight. But then if you add on multiple layers of complexity of hormonal regulation, of mood, of microbiome, that's when it, 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 it adds a lot more sophistication as to what your behavioral change would dictate. It's and and you... Exactly. And you hit the nail um, right, you know, uh, on his head talking about the hyperpalatability. Like that is a perfect example. You know, same calories, even same raw material. But when you season it, when you, you process it to be hyperpalatable, you suddenly eat more calories. Yes. Yes. And, you know, so calories in versus calories out is true. It's a law of physics. But it, that's such an oversimplification because hormones, microbiome, like uh, there's so many factors that influence that calories out. Like your metabolism is, is constantly fluctuating, okay? So it's not the set, like, you know, the set you know, thing that you could just count on. I'm going to burn 2,000 calories. It's always fluctuating. And then what we're talking about is food affects your behaviors. And if you think that doesn't have an impact on your ability to gain 
or lose body fat or gain or build muscle or whatever, you're, you know, you know, you're, you're in the wrong place. It has a massive impact. So you could eat, you could have two diets that have the exact same calories, even the same macronutrient profile, but one of them could be made up of foods that affect your behaviors in ways where it makes it very difficult for you to stay on that calorie intake. And the other one can have a, you know, can be done in a way to where it makes it very easy. The behaviors are what we need to look at. We need to stop looking so much at the mechanistic aspects. That's important, but that's not nearly as important as behaviors because if you develop this relationship with food, you know, one of the problems is that we value food primarily based on its palatability. Most people don't even, it's funny, I would get clients and I'd ask them questions like, you know, uh, do you have heartburn? Do you have whatever? Do you, you know, do you suffer from, you know, gastro issues? And they'd be saying, you know, I'd, I'd have clients tell me, oh, yeah, every day at noon I have to take antacid because I tend to get heartburn. And they don't even connect that they're, what they're eating may be possibly causing this problem. We've, we've learned to value food for its palatability and nothing else. You know, part of the process of, of developing this relationship with food that's long, that's long term and consistent and sustainable is becoming aware of all of the values of food. Like, you, what'll actually happen is you'll actually start to learn to appreciate and crave foods that have beneficial effects for you. You just have to be aware of them. So it's like, I, when I go on a trip, on a business trip, when I come back, I crave vegetables. Why? Because they're hard to come by when I travel and my, my, digestive is, my digestive system's a bit off. Now, is it because I like the taste of vegetables over pizza and burgers and fries? Well, no. But because I've become aware of how it affects me digestively, I actually crave those vegetables. By the way, food companies know this. If you look at commercials for food, they're often trying to connect it to something else to make you want that food. Like, for example, here's an easy one, right? Um, when do you crave popcorn the most? Right? You go to the movies. Yeah. When you go to the movies. So these associations are made for you all the time by these food manufacturers. You can do this yourself as well by becoming more aware. And what you may find is you actually start to crave foods that improve your performance. You may start to crave foods because you can sleep better. You may start to crave foods because they help your skin look better and improve your energy. And you may actually find that those hard-to-avoid foods, that maybe those junk foods or whatever, you may actually start to find because you become more aware is you actually don't want them as much because you start to identify like, you know, when I eat, when I eat that food that I, that I really like the taste of, I noticed because I pay attention now, man, I get moody afterwards or I feel irritable or my sleep is off. Once you start to connect those dots, you'll start to find that you'll start to make choices that are better for yourself. And it becomes, like I said, it's a process you want to do, not one where you feel like you're forcing yourself to do. It's a positive reinforcement. It's a positive association. And we naturally are drawn to things that make us feel good. And if we can associate types of food that makes us feel good in one way or another, we are naturally drawn to it. So that makes perfect sense. Yes. Otherwise, it just becomes uh, uh, what tastes the best? What hedonistic mm -hmm. value does this food provide? But if you become aware of all of the values that food provide you, and that is a process of awareness because you don't know what you don't know. You know, before we started the podcast, um, you got on and you said, hey, the more I learn about the human body, about the science of nutrition, the more I feel like I don't know. Well, the reason why that's happening for you is because when you first started, you didn't know what you didn't know. Now you know what you don't know and you realize, wow, this is a lot more complex than I thought. Well, 
people are often in a state of uh, unconscious incompetence when it comes to this. They don't know what they don't know. So when you first start out, it's a good idea to take notes. Before you eat, how do I feel right now? Oh, I feel irritable or I feel stressed or I just feel like I crave this food. Then eat it and then take notes of afterwards. How do I feel? Bloated or my energy is great or wow, I notice I sleep better when I eat this. Once you start to make those notes, you'll start to become aware of what you don't know. And then you can consciously become competent. And then eventually the, the process leads to you becoming unconsciously competent. What does that look like? That looks like I eat in ways that serve me best and I don't have to sit there and think about it all the time. I know because I'm aware. I've become aware through this process. Right. And, and I know that, you know, to a certain extent, um, genetics play a big role in reaction to food. Do you think, you know, as, as you experience, you know, uh, decades of experience in training, does genetics have a role to play in strength training, for example? Are, are there any signs or any, any um, evidence behind, you know, somebody should be more resistant to resistance training, you know, yeah. no pun intended, or somebody might be more beneficial if they do more cardio. Is there such such thing um, uh, in, in training? No, okay, so not necessarily like that, but genetics do play a big role in how our bodies adapt uh, to exercise. So if we look at like, um, if we look at the spectrum of physical adaptations to exercise, on one end of the spectrum, we have uh, like professional athletes. Their bodies just are, besides being hard workers and all that stuff, you know, with, with their sport, they are genetically like rare in terms of how well in a, in their body adapts to exercise. Like they build muscle, strength, speed, and agility at ridiculously incredible rates, and they're very rare. And then on the other end, you have, you know, uh, muscular disorders or you know issues of you know, um, you know where where your neurology may not react well or whatever. Very extreme on the other end. In the middle is where most of us are. And most of us are somewhere in the middle. So now this, by the way, this leads us to another great conversation where I'll get women sometimes will say they're afraid of building too much muscle. Not going to happen. You're not going to build, you're not going to build too much muscle. The people who can build tremendous amounts of muscle are so far on this extreme end. It's extremely rare. It's as rare as somebody who's seven feet tall. Like, you know, when you walk around everyday life, you never see anybody that's seven feet tall. It's extremely rare. That's how rare it is to have the kind of muscle building genetics where, you work out and then you're like, oh my God, I'm getting too big. Uh, that's not going to happen. But when it comes to adaptations, everybody will get stronger through strength training. Everybody can build endurance through endurance training. Genetics does determine though your potential, but your potential is like this, you know, like I can be this strong or I could be this weak. And if I'm a professional athlete, my potential is probably somewhere over here. Right. So, but genetics definitely play a role for sure. Great. Great. Um, that that's such a funny point um you know where some of you know my friends are like oh i don't want to get too big and i'm like do you know how hard i have to work yeah. to even get like one pound of muscle in yeah. like a, a week or you know two weeks and so for people who are struggling who you know you you mentioned the there are these people who are like oh i'm i'm already like maxing out at 5 days a week of workout pushing myself in the gym, lowering my, my, my calories up to like 1,200 calories, and I'm still not seeing results. I still have 10 pounds to lose. What advice could you give us um, to these people? Yeah, we got to back out of that. So what you'll do is you'll do what's called a reverse diet. 
And you're slowly back out of the calorie burning workouts and, and focus more on the strength building workouts. Okay. So a reverse diet is just like it sounds. You slowly increase your calories, make sure you're getting what's considered optimal protein intake uh, for the sake of boosting metabolism, muscle building. And this looks like between 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight for average weight individuals. So if you're 100 pounds, that's like 60 to 80 grams. It's a lot of protein, by the way. So if you're in a 150-pound female, is going to consume like 120 grams of protein, okay? So you want to increase protein intake, slowly increase your calories, slowly reduce the calorie-burning type workouts, and then place the focus on muscle building. And what will happen is your metabolism will start to reverse and it will start to build. And what you'll find and what you should expect is that first few months, what you want is to see the weight on the scale not move at all or maybe go up a little bit, okay? Because what we're trying to do is slowly bump the calories up, slowly speed up the metabolism. Then when you get to a point where you're eating a decent amount of food and you're like, man, I'm eating a lot, I feel good, I feel strong, now you have a good place to cut calories from, right? You know, you don't want to cut calories when you're, when you're only burning 1,500 calories a day because your metabolism is slow. Where are you going to end up, right? But if you're at 2,500 calories a day, well, now I can work down to a sustainable place. So it's, it's, it's a reverse diet process. It could take a while. If somebody's done a lot of cycles of extreme dieting, extreme cardio, it could take as, as long as a year to get that person's metabolism to really start to ramp up. But it's the only sustainable approach. Otherwise, you're just going to, I mean, you can keep, I guess, spinning your tires in the dirt would be the other option. Right, right, right. Um, that's, thank you for the advice. It's essentially retraining your basal metabolic rate to yes. where you are not, you're increasing your calories, but you're still not putting on weight. You are putting on mu lean muscle mass and hopefully potentially also reducing fat mass, you know, with your workout at the same time. And then when you're at a good place, then you can sort of increase the intensity of, of fat burning, of weight loss sort of uh, routine, routine as well. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I had a, a young lady hire me years ago and she did a lot of these kind of uh, um, figure competitions. So it's like stage presentation. And they do extreme dieting. I mean, these these girls get down to, you know, you know, nine percent, which for a woman is just incredibly shredded, right? Really lean, not very healthy. And she did a bunch of these shows in a row. And she came to me and she said, "I I don't know where to go from here." She's like, "I'm working out six days a week. I'm running twenty miles a week. I'm eating about seventeen hundred calories a day. Like, what do I do? Do I just eat less? Like, what do we do from here?" So we did a reverse diet. I had her focus on building strength. We reduced her running. At the end of the year process, she was consuming 2,500 calories a day. She was lifting weights three days a week. She was only running five miles a week. So she was doing far less work and able to eat much more food. Then she decided she wanted to do another show, and it was very easy for her to diet from that point. That's, that's a great example because then your body is, you know, adapted to it. But then at the same time, because you've done it, your body remembers it. And then when you go back to that sort of routine, it can react to it quite much, uh, much faster. Yes. Um, in terms of advice, you know, I've got another question, right? If um, people are talking about compound exercise, we know, we all know what, you know, all the benefits of doing compound exercises for, for all sorts of reasons. But is it recommended for you to do multiple compound exercise on the same day? For example, if you do squats and deadlifts back to back, is that too much of a burden to your nervous system? Um, it depends on the exercises. I typically would not have someone squat and deadlift in the same day. It, that's a lot of posterior chain stress. So posterior chain is all the muscles of the back. 
and it places people in a, a lot of risk for uh, back injuries all in the same workout. Um, but you can do multiple compound lifts in the same workout if you modify the intensity. People tend to overdo intensity. Intensity needs to be appropriate. There's like this bell curve with, with exercise. The right amount will give you the best results. Less gives you less results. More gives you less results. There's a perfect dose. It's like medication. Like you take the right amount of medication, you get great. Too much, you may kill yourself, right? Too little, you're not going to get the effect. So the right amount, people ask, well, what's the right amount? Well, it's, 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 it's a little more than what you're doing now, typically. So if you're totally sedentary, it doesn't take much to get your body to start to respond. Now, if you've been lifting weights for five years and you're very consistent, well, yeah, now to get any further adaptations, it's like you got to train very intensely and it's, it's going to look a lot different. But yeah, compound lifts are, are effective because they work so much muscle mass with, with, with few sets. Like a barbell squat, for example, is going to work the entire lower body, glutes, hamstrings, quads. You're also going to get, you know, lumbar activation there with the erector spinae muscles, core activation, thoracic activation from holding the bar. You would have to piece together like six different exercises to do what that exercise did. Um, so it, it, they're, they're just effective at what they do. Now, along those lines, um, here's a good rule of, uh, uh, for most people, a good rule of thumb. When you go to the gym, if you're trying to find the appropriate intensity for yourself and you're thinking long-term, don't think you're going to the gym to work out. Think you're going to the gym to practice, okay? Exercises are like skills. The better you get at the exercise, the more return you're going to get. So a poorly done squat is only going to give you so much results. A well-performed squat is going to give you far better results. So imagine you're going to the gym and you're learning to play basketball. You wouldn't just run as fast as you could. You would actually learn the skill. Do that with your strength training. So when you go to the gym, pick four exercises, five exercises, and think to yourself, how do I perfect the technique, the form, the feel, the range of motion? And that tends to gear people towards an appropriate intensity. And I remember uh, you know, figuring that out years ago with clients where – I would have clients that work with me for a long time and then they'd start to kind of work out on their own. And, um, you know, oftentimes they would overdo it or the intensity was inappropriate. And then I started saying, hey, on the days you don't see me, just go to the gym and practice these lifts. And then, boom, their strength would improve. Injury rate would go down. They'd feel phenomenal. You should feel at the end of your workout like you have more energy and more vitality. You should not feel at the end of your workout like you just survived your workout, like you're crawling to your car or you need to lay on the couch. Rarely that will provide benefit, but usually it doesn't. Most of the time it doesn't. If you finish your workout and you feel great, like, man, I feel so energized. I feel like I want to get to work or I feel so motivated. I feel so, so up and so uplifted. You, you did the right amount. If you finish your workout and you're like dead too much, amazing advice i'm going to start practicing that by you know on, on my own and you know, i just going to the gym have that mindset of i am practicing these lifts i'm yep. practicing the range of motion i'm practicing the, the proper form uh, and i want to respect your time here as well um, i've got one last question for you okay. um fed and fasted workout when do you do what for what goals okay so physiologically speaking we can talk about that but i'm going to tell you before we get into that what what trumps all of that is personal preference. So the one that you enjoy the most is the one you're most likely to do consistently 
And what you do consistently is going to be better than what you do inconsistently. Okay. So like the data shows that you're going to perform better with your workout in terms of strength and stamina by being somewhat fed. So eating some food an hour or two before is going to give you some better performance. Okay. That being said, a lot of people prefer to work out fasted. I'm one of those people. I like to work out fasted. I wake up at 5 a.m. and I work out at 6 or 6.30 in the morning. I don't want to eat before I work out. I like to eat after I work out. I feel better. I feel lighter. Yes, I know I could probably lift a couple more pounds if I fed myself and whatever, but that would require me to time my workout at a different time or whatever. So it really doesn't make that big. We're splitting hairs when it comes to that. The only people that I make this like a big point are high performance athletes. Like if you're going to be on competition day and every percent matters, then I'm going to look at the physiological aspect. But for the average person, I always return that with this. Which way do you prefer to work out? Well, that's the right answer. Thank you very much. And uh, for our listeners who are interested to get more of all this amazing advice from you, um, where can they find you on social media and your website? Could you please tell us? Yeah, so Mind Pump is the best place. And it's um, uh, our podcast can be found on, on any podcast platform. We also uh, film the podcast for YouTube. It's also a visual show. So you can go on YouTube, uh, Mind Pump Podcast, and you find us. And that's the best place. You know, the episodes are just full of free information. Um, and then if you want more specific free guidance, you can go to mindpumpfree.com. And we have fitness guides that are totally free that can help you with a, a variety of different goals. And then if you want a workout program, you actually want to invest in one of our workout programs, then you go to mapsfitnessproducts.com. Amazing. And um, thank you so much for you graciously sharing all this information. Every answer that you have you know, to my question is basically a piece of advice that our listeners can take home to. Um, so thank you so much. And guys, please uh, check him out. Check Saldis Stefano out. Check Mind Pump out. There's a lot of information that they put out there. And um, hopefully you, know, you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for being on Health Fire Modern Nutrition podcast, uh, Sal. You got it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.